Welcome everyone, you are listening to No Co Cinema here on WGM Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. I am your host, Tom Hush, and joining me as always is my beautiful yet terrifying co-host, Connor Cornelius. Connor, so good to see you again. Tom? Yeah? Um, can I just talk to you over here for a sec? Yeah, sure, what's up? So I, I saw you. I know that you put half and half in my decaffeinated beverage, Tom. Well, yeah, I thought you wanted half and half. No, Tom. You know I don't like irresolute dairy products. Okay, I just thought you might need a little pep in your step or something like if that. If I wanted pep in my step, I wouldn't be drinking decaf, oh, all right? Okay, do you, do we really need to do no, this we right can, now? No, we can I'm move having on. a very no. hard time with this, okay? Just okay. let's get on. All right, all right so No Co Cinema back again. Oh, we were gone for a little while. We were gone for a couple a of weeks. Warm. Yeah, uh, but it was through no fault of our own, except it was. Um, well, literally I mean, it was, but literally, yeah. But I mean, Connor, you had to get uh, <laughs> your teeth ripped out. You had I, to get your wisdom teeth. Yeah, out. I had a horrific, uh, horrific dental experience. And, yeah, uh, that's came, what happened. Similar to Jacob's ladder. Yeah, if you're familiar. If you're familiar with Jacob's ladder, imagine getting your wisdom teeth out, but it's also Jacob's ladder. Um, That's but it. you made it. You're here. I'm good now. Yeah, we're we're good now. And I found myself in uh, northern Michigan. And uh, as it turns out, there's a very finite number of things that you can do in northern Michigan before you run out of things to do. That is no slight against the people of northern Michigan. I'm just a little bit used to Chicago and uh, being able to do virtually whatever I want at any given hour of the day. But nonetheless, we are back and we are here to stay as you know as we want to do um so and we got some news yeah we do so uh i think it's time for our (laughs) our news jingle for our coming soon segment news news yeah 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 yeah. the news news the news Mm. news coming soon Coming soon to a theater near you. Oh, yeah. Come on now. Gonna talk about what's going on. What's going on. What's going on. Yeah. All right. So, as Connor said, it is, in fact, news time. And we, since we've been gone for a little while, there's a lot to talk about. Things have definitely not slowed down. And uh, we're going to open up with something that has really made me personally, my blood boil with rage and hatred, but Connor, if you could. I've never seen you like this before, Tom. Um, So AMC recently is uh, the creators of the hit AMC show, The Walking Dead, have filed a lawsuit against AMC because they effectively licensed the show to itself, which which what that means is they get all of the money from the show and they are potentially millions of dollars in debt to the like they haven't paid yeah. these people they bre- they breached contracts if not billions of dollars and some people might go to jail yeah this yeah. is this is honestly one of the uh craziest stories i've seen out of hollywood in a in a while um and this is to be clear we're talking about amc the uh television uh entity not amc theaters we'll get to them later but um amc basically the, what they did is called vertical integration so uh amc has producers on the walking dead 
Um, one of them, Gail Ann Hurd, known for uh, co-creating the Terminator franchise with James Cameron. Uh, the creator of The Walking Dead, Robert Kirkman. Uh, previously, you had Frank Darabont, who uh, was the showrunner responsible for the first season, arguably the entire thing's success because of his you know, fantastic direction and ideas for the show. And he left the show in a pretty public and ugly manner during the middle of the second season. Absolutely. And he has filed, he pre, has already previously filed the suit, but uh, essentially what happened is that they were guaranteed profits uh, or a share of some of the profits from the show. And they made that deal with AMC Studios, which is the production arm of these AMC entities. And uh, they made this deal pretty standard that they were going to get a certain share of the profits. What appears to have happened, and this is this is simply in the complaint. This is simply in the complaint. What appears to have happened is, uh, and I will read directly here from the complaint, this is publicly available. You can get this by going to thehollywoodreporter.com where this story is. Um, it was posted on August 14th. And right now, uh, this is mainly the complaint. Uh, the defendant AMC entities exploited their vertically integrated corporate structure to combine both the production and the exhibition of The Walking Dead, which allowed AMC to keep the lion's share of the series' enormous profits for itself and not share it with the plaintiffs as required by their contracts. More specifically, the Walking Dead was owned by AMC Studios and aired on AMC Network, both, both of which are owned by the same public entity parent, quote, AMC parent. Uh, the Walking Dead is the most successful cable television series in history and indeed for most of its run on the AMC Network has been the highest rated program in the coveted 18 to 49 demographic. And it pretty much goes on and on from there. For about 60 pages. Yeah, 60 pages. This is full legalese. And I, I do urge you to read it, though, because it does give you in full a little bit. You know, it's there's plenty of jargon. There's plenty of abbreviations. Um, if you've ever wanted to see... Uh, several abbreviations, several, uh, you know, initialisms featuring WD in it, TWD, FWD, TTD. All like, the big ones. All, all the, the big, big ones. ones. Basically referencing the many uh, facets of the Walking Dead television franchise. But uh, essentially what happened was they combined the uh, exhibition and they combined the production of this show in order to reap the benefits. So AMC Studios would essentially not charge uh, exhibition fees of the exhibitor, which was more or less itself. Yeah. So that way they would not have to share profits that they were getting from advertising and all this kind of stuff that fell under the exhibition arm of AMC. At the end of the day, AMC was making bank on this show, and they are not kidding this is one of the most successful, if not the most successful, cable television series in history. This beat out other AMC shows such as Breaking Bad and Mad Men in terms of the ratings it was getting and the revenue it was bringing in. So, Connor, what the hell, man? Like, this is insane. I was reading an interview with Frank Darabont, and he was just talking about the attitude that the executives had, and they were just very removed. They would only, only stay in their air-conditioned tents. They wouldn't go onto set. <laughs> they wouldn't go into, like, they wouldn't go into the sets, and they didn't really, 
the what he and what he essentially says is that they have no respect for the amount of effort that it uh took to create that show and Mm -hmm. and this like you said it's one of the most successful of all time certainly amc's most um it broke viewership records in 120 countries in some cases by over a thousand percent and to just learn that the people who are responsible for bringing the show to amc and giving them this opportunity to have such a success on under their name to learn now that the highest members of that you know company have just been fleecing the people who are actually doing the groundwork it's uh it's a story. It's a it's story not too often told. It's not surprising, yeah, no. is it? No, and that's the sad part. Um, and it's it's crazy that we're hearing the term vertical integration again, especially in Hollywood, uh, especially because back in the '40s, this was also a problem with the studio system. As many, uh, if you study the history of film, this was a big deal back in the day. Um, all these studios, their companies were vertically integrated, meaning that they were in charge of the production and exhibition of these films so you would get they paramount specifically there was the u.s versus paramount pictures and what they fought against was they they showed that paramount made the movies they distributed the movies and then they also exhibited their own movies so you would get movie houses that would play nothing but paramount pictures and the problem there was that it left it was a total trust it was just it was they had to be broken up by antitrust laws because it prevented a free uh, flow of you know market interest there were no no one was going to be making movies unless paramount or fox or uh universal said so and even if they did make those movies they couldn't be exhibited anywhere because all of the theaters were privately owned by the studios that were making the movies you see my point it's um i just can't believe that we're seeing this again but in television it was really only a matter of time i suppose but holy cow this is unbelievable <sighs> Unbelievable. Shame on you, AMC. Shame on you, AMC. And uh, you know what? Screw The Walking Dead. That show sucks. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think that Breaking Bad and uh, well, Breaking Bad and Mad Men are definitely better shows. Definitely better shows than The Walking Dead. And you know what? If Frank Darabont were able to have stayed, I think it could have been good. But you know what? He would have been getting screwed the entire time. Yeah. So now I have to put a disclaimer. Nothing has been proven. This is not in court yet. And we don't know AMC's side. Yeah, we don't know AMC's side one. of the story. But it's pretty clear that this is probably what was happening. Yes. Um, I don't think Robert Kirkman, a comic book writer, really has any incentive like he, to like lie about this. The guy gave away his baby to be made into a television series, and they've completely, as you said, fleeced him. They've completely taken away so much that he is owed for his intellectual property. All of their success in this show rests on his back for simply creating the work. So you got to pay him. You got to pay the producers. You got to pay the the former showrunner. You know, it's in the contract. You got to do it. And um, if that means taking one less yacht trip out to the Bahamas, so be it. So be it. Uh, Let's move on. In lighter news. in, In lighter news. Uh, you may be able to take movie theaters for a complete ride yeah. thanks to a new service, or rather a service that is expanding. Connor, if you want to give us a little primer on that. So it's called Movie Pass, and the uh, the gist of it is you will be able to pay nine ninety five a month uh, for this card, and what it will allow you to do is you'll be able to see a movie a day. Is that the way it works? Yeah. 
So it's a movie a day, and if you are familiar with the cost of uh, movie Movies. tickets, <laughs> yeah, which could range from anywhere between nine dollars or like seven dollars and like fifteen. Yeah. So if you pay this ten dollar a month fee, uh, and you go see, you go to the cinema once, you've made your money back. Yes. It functions basically like a debit card, and but like you've already, it just pays for the movie and amc which is the largest exhibition company in the world yes uh for film um is trying to block this from happening of course yeah but um it's it got kind sense. of a rational there's a rationale for it oh 100 percent. Th- you're absolutely right connor um i i like the idea i think it's a great idea because you know as two people who see a lot of movies and we love to see movies in theaters um this would be an incredible value yeah. and um, spotify for cinema yeah it's uh, it's exactly Spotify for cinema, um, and it would be kind like of. so nice. <laughs> well, they're also who knows? We haven't seen if they're uh, screwing their users yet. Um, but <laughs> you know, there, this is this is the main problem with it. It is uh, the movie pass used to exist. It was fourteen ninety five. Now they want to bring it down to nine ninety five, and um, the problem is that uh, and as AMC puts it, AMC theaters. It is not yet known how to turn lead into gold. Like, AMC believes that holding out to consumers that first-run movies can be watched in theaters at great quantities for monthly price of nine ninety-five dollars is not doing any favors for the moviegoers. Right. Uh, and that's coming from Deadline. Deadline has got the uh, the comment from AMC there. Um, and so it might just not the, be sustainable. No. Right. And I think they – I mean, AMC absolutely has a point. As much as I hate paying um, you know, a ton of money just to go see a movie in an AMC theater, they've got everything I want, and they, you know, they're a business. They have to make money. They're exhibiting these films. Something has to be done about it. And the nine ninety five a month is um, already making people nervous because – the most movies are more expensive yeah, than that that's exactly <laughs> most there most theaters you go to don't like their tickets are not ten dollars i would be psyched if i got to pay 9.95 for a movie ticket yeah that wasn't i mean matinees you can get, usually get a good price and they're five dollar tuesdays whatever whatever sure, yeah. but like you know 9.95 that's pretty pretty nice yeah. <laughs> and uh i mean even even the news of this kind of made um, made MoviePass's uh, business profile go up. I mean, there was a 7.9 lift in stock price when that news broke, which is not, Ooh like, crazy. <laughs> Give me that 7.9%. Let me see 7.9 on the big board. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, our, rend- for, for that is our rendition of uh, stockbrokers on the NY Stock Exchange. Uh, you Thank can- you very much. Thank you very much. You can buy that CD on Amazon. Anyway, um, it's, it's we'll see. We'll see how yeah. this goes yeah. out. We'll see. I can't. I might try it. I'd be willing to try it. I don't know how long I'll be able to try it for, but yeah. we will. We'll we'll just have to see. And it beats uh, staying at home, especially when your streaming selection is going down. Yep. Um, we want now. This story came out while we were gone. But uh, we have to comment on it because we are all streamers here. Everybody pretty much has at least one streaming service. And, uh, Connor, go ahead. Take it away. All right. So <clears throat> Disney, if you're who? familiar. Wait, who? Disney. Huh? Walt. Uh, they got like a rat or something. Oh, yeah. Ricky no. Rat. Ricky, yeah. Is that it? I think so. You know, the iconic rat with the ears. Mm-hmm. Um. 
And he eats like corpses. Yeah, exactly. That okay, one. yeah. The no, family thing. Yeah. So oh, Disney is pulling all of their in the process of pulling all of their films off of Netflix. They and the reason is is because Disney is going to set up its own streaming service where all of its movies will be held there. Netflix has tried to uh is trying to hold on to some of the more uh I don't know how you say like yeah. High profile, High, popular. Yeah, like they want to keep the Marvel movies on there. They, they want to keep, keep Civil Star War, War yeah, and Star, Star Wars. Wars yeah. But they, yeah, <laughs> they. So basically, what Disney it, is going to own everything. <laughs> is the problem. That's the that's the problem. So what the the whole thing is is that so Disney and Netflix had previously reached an agreement where Netflix was going to get exclusive access to all new Marvel and Star Wars movies and, like, exclusive access to these Disney movies through, like, 2019 or something like that. Yeah. And then Disney recently has just fired back and said, we're going to pull out of that deal, and that's going to start, like, like I think it starts in 2019. It's official if they pull out and they're yeah. done. Um, because Disney purchased a little thing called BamTech, and BamTech is what ML, the MLB, Major League Baseball, was using, the tech they were using to stream um, baseball games on demand. So what Disney is thinking is that we need to get into the streaming game. And you know who's not streaming right now? Sports channels. Most of them require a previous cable subscription in order to log in. ESPN does have Watch ESPN where you can watch it on your computer or on your tablet and all this stuff. But you need to have the cable subscription. Same thing for Fox Sports. You need to have the cable subscription. Disney, who owns ESPN has the bright idea of taking BamTech and using it to create their own ESPN streaming service and then also move on and have a streaming service that shows all of Disney's properties, Star Wars, Pixar, Marvel um, movies, Marvel movies, base, Indiana Jones, anything by Lucasfilm. Yep. Basically, this wide number of properties that they have under their, uh, under their belt, and they're just going to be like, well, this is where you're going to have to watch Disney movies. And this just opens up a whole other can of worms about just the overstuffing of the uh, streaming industry in general. Yeah, we've we're reaching a pretty interesting point where streaming services are starting to just fail. Yep. Um, CISO. If, yeah, being CISO. The first one. And it's really unfortunate because for those of you who've ever uh, used CISO or know what CISO is, it was a comedy streaming platform devised by NBC. Hired a lot of really great, funny people. Scott Ackerman was involved. Uh, his wife, Kulap, uh, Kulop, the widow Kulop, if you listen to uh, Comedy <laughs> Bang Bang. Uh, she was involved. They had pretty big successful she had, they had some success in at least critically with shows like Bajillion Dollar Properties. Yep. Paul of Tompkins. Paul of Tompkins in that one. Uh, a lot of great young comedy talent. They also had access to the entire SNL archive and uh Monty Python? Yeah, everything by Monty Python. At least the Flying Circus. I think they also had the movies. Uh hundreds and hundreds of comedy specials. So much content and it just failed. It just recently went under. They're just like, yeah, CISO's done. Like we can't we can't make it financially feasible. And they even marketed themselves as like an add-on. Yeah. Um, they were available. The, I think it was like $5 a month and you can get CISO and you get access to all this purely comedy stuff. Um, I think you were able to use it as part of your Amazon package. Like you could add it on as a channel, kind of like how you can add on HBO or Showtime now to Amazon. Um, there is a smaller sort of consolidated service called 
Verve, VRV, that has uh, the Funimation and Crunchyroll anime streaming services. They had CISO that you could purchase as part of a package. So they made themselves available. They had the content and yeah, right off the edge. So, I mean, what is Connor, what do we do here? Like, if Disney's going to go on by itself, it won't fail. It's too big to fail. Right. It's going to it's going to just become just because Disney is doing it because they own so much like you said. I didn't even know that they owned ESPN. They own ESPN, they own Marvel, they own Lucasfilm, they own ABC. They are Disney themselves, you yeah. know? They have Touchstone Pictures. They have like I could I couldn't even count on my body the number of massive like properties that Disney outright just owns. It's it, frightening. It is. And um what it what it comes down to is this as you said, the overstuffing and yeah. the fragmentation of all the content. It's overstuffed and it's all over the place. It's like where do you go to watch anything? Oh, you have to have this service or you have to have this or like at some point, it's just not even worth it. It's like, just fatiguing, just, right? Right, yeah. Because <laughs> you have to have Netflix to get, you know, uh, the Defenders, right? You know, from Marvel, and then, but if you want to watch The Handmaid's Still, you gotta have Hulu. You gotta have Hulu, and if you want to watch Bob's Burgers, you gotta have Hulu because Fox has an exclusive license with Hulu because they are a part owner of Hulu. And if you want to see Manchester by the Sea, you gotta have Amazon. You gotta have Amazon, and they have all their great movies, and they have their own licenses with other movies. But and then you want to watch the new Beauty and the Beast, so you're gonna oh, have to get for- the new Disney. God's sake, how will I live if I can't stream Beauty and the Beast? That's a question I don't know. We ask ourselves every day. I, yeah, because um, it was pretty good. That's the fallacy <laughs> of composition though, right? Yeah. Is just Absolutely. it's like when something looks good, everybody sort of flocks to it and then overstuffs it and makes everything less good that thing it like completely distorts what made that thing good in the first place yeah it's the switching lanes yeah you see one lane you think it's going faster everybody goes to it like disney your lane is bigger than everybody else just stay in your lane yeah damn it just (laughs) license your stuff out who can't share yeah you literally make billions and billions of dollars on everything wouldn't it be wouldn't it behoove you to make it make it easier on the consumer they're still going to consume your content. You are still going to get licensing fees from Netflix. You are still going to get licensing fees from wherever you put it. You're Disney. People want your sh- Like People want to stream Star Wars. Just make it easy. And that's, that's, that's just the, the narrative every time is no one can watch anything because it's hard to find. It's hard to find. And if it would also be endearing, you know, if Disney cooperated with other com- companies. Yeah, I'm so. I apologize, listeners. I apologize. I am losing it right now because <laughs> it's been a whole. It's been a long week, man. Yeah, it's very frustrating to be a fan of something and just not be able to get what you want. Because it's, it's. I mean, granted, you can go on Google Play, you can go on iTunes, and you can pay the single rental fee, and that's fine. Yeah. You you have that. I shouldn't say that it's not available at all, but that racks up. And uh, as much as I am a fan of paying for things, like you have to pay for your content, getting things for free is not, you know, fair. And it's not it's not right to just get things for free simply because you, you know, people make their living off these things. But um, at a certain point, it's just not feasible for someone to just be constantly renting these movies. So that's why you have something like Netflix where you pay that flat subscription rate and they go for that. They go for that. All right, decompressed. But you know what? 
we've got this all out, but the best part is is that there's so much more show to come. Uh, we're going to be talking to Eddie Muller, who is the founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation. He is a host on Turner Classic Movies. He hosts a show called Noir Alley. And uh, he's got this fantastic film festival that goes, you know, they do it in multiple cities, but they're coming to Chicago. Mm -hmm. It's called Noir City, and they're going to be at the Music Box coming up starting the 25th, and it goes until the 31st. And they're going to be showing so many great classic noir films. We're going to talk to him a little bit about noir and, uh, you know, what is it, how to get interested in it, and what, what is so enduring about film noir and why is it so integral to our, uh, our culture, our film culture. And then following that, in our, uh, our after credit sequence, we talk to David Holcomb, who is a big fan of the show, and we are big fans of him. And we talk a little bit about resistance cinema and the kind of uh, different movies that depict people fighting against oppression, because I feel like we just need to talk about that. In this, in this time and place, it's important that we uh, talk about oppression and we talk about how we can uh, resist the forces that be. You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. Back in just a bit. Cinema here on WGM Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. I am your host, Tom Hush, joined back again by my co-host, Connor Cornelius. Connor, thanks again for making it to this segment. Absolutely. Um, I'm psyched out of my mind. We have Eddie Muller with us today. Yes, Eddie Muller. He is uh, our guest today for our feature presentation segment. And just to give you a little bit of background on this fine gentleman, he is a writer, a filmmaker, and a noirchaeologist. Is that right, Eddie? Yes, a noirchaeologist. The czar of noir. Funny, you know, these, these things pop out. It, you know, I've been doing this long enough now that these noirchaeologists and the czar of noir, these are things that I've heard along the way, and it's like, oh, that's pretty good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that one. Yeah, put that on the business card. Uh, he is yeah. the founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation, which is a nonprofit public benefit corporation created as an educational resource regarding the cultural, historical, and artistic significance of film noir as an original American cinematic movement. He's also the host of Noir Alley on TCM. Uh, his books include Dark City, The Lost Fi- World of Film Noir, Dark City Dames, The Wicked Women of Film Noir, and uh, a bunch of others. And you've also recorded numerous audio commentaries of dvd reissues um for classic noir films and robert osborne uh from turner classic movies once said no one knows more about film noir than eddie muller would you say that's true (laughs) no (laughs) it was very very nice of robert to say that uh you know but i'm sure there's somebody that knows more about it than me but there's nobody that has um 
has uh, a platform, <laughs> I think, That's... quite like I have, uh, to uh, preach the gospel of noir, so to speak. Excellent. Well, and thank all you that, for... that intro, when you talked about the Film Noir Foundation, that's all uh, a, a very elaborate way of saying that we, we raise money to rescue and restore movies. That's what the Film Noir Foundation does. Well, it is a, it is a fine venture, Eddie, and thank you so much for coming on the show. It is my pleasure. I, I look forward to talking with you guys. So, Eddie, uh, whoever is the most knowledgeable aside, you've clearly made a long career out of being a, a, a student and a fan of uh, noir films. But uh, film noir has existed since the since the fort since the nineteen forties. What about this style or genre um, is so enduring? Do you think? What about it makes um, it so? You know, enduring? that's a, that's a good question, and I'm glad that you uh, that you said that I was a student and a fan uh, because I think that that kind of nails it. I mean, um, yes, I, I have kind of an unflagging enthusiasm. For this stuff that I that I hope comes through, uh, in addition to just a, a you know a, a scholarly bent, uh, but I, I think the the thing that ma- keeps this so fresh is is a few things. Number one, it's obviously the style, and I think when people think of film noir, that's what they think of first is the look of these things, and uh, you know I tend to think that American style sort of reached its zenith concurrent with the uh, the height of the original film noir movement. Um, I think it's um, there's something about them. They're kind of smart-mouthed and very cynical, which keeps them uh, perhaps more in tune with today's culture than some other uh, older films that people, you know, have a, a unfortunate tendency to dismiss as corny or something. I, I don't really think that noir... Uh, qualifies as being too corny. Um, so I, I really think that that's a major part of it is uh, is the style thing. Plus, um, it's one of the few, whatever you want to call it. I mean, this is an endless debate. Is this a genre? Is it a style? Is it a? I consider it a movement, an artistic movement of the, of its time. Um, but people love to debate what it is and what films qualify for being considered. Noir, and I, I honestly, among cinephiles and things, I think that that's um, a, a key to its popularity. Is that um, an exact definition is somewhat elusive, and people people like to argue about it. That's true. We love, and that's the thing about film fans: we love to argue and love to make our case. <laughs> I just out of curiosity, Eddie, what would you say are some of the major? Uh, tenants or stylistic points, tropes that are essential to film noir? Well, uh, you know, I'm going to say this. I'll answer that question. And then, of course, I could spend another 30 minutes talking about why I refute (laughs) everything I just said to you. Uh, But clearly, I mean, most people identify it as uh, black and white, uh, you know, a a certain... uh, darkness in the in, in the visuals uh chiaroscuro cinematography to throw a ten dollar word out there um some italian you know, from, for from, you yes that's italian interplay of light and shadow um and uh, you know for me i would say that uh, for a film to really be noir as opposed to like a garden variety cops and robbers movie or something like that um 
the the stories tend to focus on the people uh you know the protagonists are the guilty people so you're more likely to find you know something like double indemnity or the postman always rings twice stories like that where the protagonists that you're asked to empathize with are the people actually committing the crimes it's you know that's not a, a judgment saying you know, oh, you know, we're supposed to think what they're doing is right. No, it's just that these stories choose to focus on um, making the antagonist the protagonist of the story, if you will. And to me, seems- that that really is kind of an essential thing. Um, if if it's genuinely noir, as opposed to a film like Dragnet or something, where it looks like film noir, but it's really just a story about cops <laughs> enforcing the law i mean that's that's what that is so um i, I hope that is <laughs> there's some clarity there yeah i mean there's all kinds of other elements as well you know some people will say it's not film noir if there isn't a femme fatale uh you know it has to end badly if it's really a film noir which limits the field considerably given that there was a production code at the time that kept a lot of these movies uh, you know, it's, it's almost like if you if you chopped off the last 30 seconds of the movie, then it'd really be hardcore noir. But you had to put those last redeeming 30 seconds on. So. In pursuit of greater clarity, um, what uh, what really separates the line between noir and a detective film? Because they're not mutually inclusive. Correct. I would think that um, a movie like The Big Sleep. I don't really think of as – I almost think of The Big Sleep more as a screwball comedy than a film noir. Uh, but I think that Philip Marlowe is infallible, and even though he walks through a very noirish world, he is the protagonist, and he himself is not a particularly morally compromised character, as opposed to something like Out of the Past, where Robert Mitchum is the private detective who is completely morally compromised in the film and, uh, you know, he colors way outside the lines and ends up running away with uh, his client's woman and all this, you know. So, I mean, to me, that's a that's a prime example of the difference between uh, what I would consider a noir detective story and, um, and, and, you know, just a regular detective story. And I think, as you mentioned, that moral ambiguity, the, uh, you know, forcing you to empathize with someone who would be, by most societal standards, considered bad, is maybe what... Uh, it's what makes it so much fun to watch and so enduring. You know, you feel a little edge when you watch these movies. As you said, Ro- someone like Robert Mitchum, he's a nasty man. You know, you get him in uh, Night of the Hunter as uh, as the Reverend, and that's so much fun to watch. And maybe that's what keeps noir such a popular genre, style, whatever you want to call it. Well, that's certainly part of it. And also, if you uh, like Cape Fear, Mitchum's uh, uh-huh. role in Cape Fear. I mean, again, he's a he's a fearsomely uh, uh, scary bad guy. But, you know, isn't that kind of um, the purpose of of art in a way? I mean, I, ever since I was a kid, I never thought that the purpose of art was to pacify the person, the observer, the reader, the viewer, whatever it is. The, the purpose was not to make you feel better. I never I never thought that, right? The purpose was to make you think about things and to challenge you. And I find that noir does that. I mean, it basically says, look, it, it, where is the point at which, you know, 
I would kill for this woman that I just <laughs> met. You know, she wants me to rob a bank, and I would I do something like this? You know, what would it take to get me to cross the line and do something I know is wrong? Um, I find those stories to be infinitely fascinating and and really really valuable because you know I have no problem separating real life from art and uh, you know it doesn't mean because I like these movies that I think that bank robbing is a is a good line of pursuit that's what I'm going to do for a living you know no but I'll I'll watch the movies certainly the more I hear you talk about this the more I'm sort of thinking that maybe the conventions inherent to noir are are timeless themselves so the concept of the tortured hero and the femme fatale and this just sort of general uh stylistic experience that makes you think about yourself and what you're you know what the characters are doing in life and you can kind of put them in in their shoes there's something about noir that does seem timeless and very um it's like applicable to to oneself. Like yeah, you're not sure. watching uh you're not sure. watching John Wayne go out there and save the day. These are people who are compromised in many different ways and make have to make the hard decisions. Um, I, well, do- I mean, uh, honestly, now you know I, I understand exactly what you're saying, but you know there are movies that present role models. Mm-hmm. And I'm not I'm not going to say, oh, those movies are invalid. <laughs> like, no, if somebody no, watches no. John Wayne and says, I want to be like that when I grow up. I mean, in some respects, I hope that's a good thing. But, yes. uh, you know, but the other side of that coin is telling stories about people who do the wrong thing. And, it, and they're just interesting tales. It's like sometimes I laugh and I call film noir like tales of karma. Yeah. You know, tales from the crypt, they're tales <laughs> of karma, you know. Uh, if you do this, you better be prepared to face the consequences because this is what's going to happen, you know. And uh, that's it's a perfectly um, you're you're correct. I, I think it's a timeless thing. But as an artistic movement, it was a thing of its time, and it's kind of fascinating to say, you know, this is why it happened. And you know, I mean, I, I now have come to understand that this sort of happened around the world. But mm-hmm. since Hollywood is the is the focus of the cinema world in the mid 20th century, um, you could see like it it became a movement. It 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 every studio was making eight to ten of these movies every year, and it became this incredible thing that all the artists participated in. The cinematographers were, I'm going to shoot a movie that looks like that, and the writers were liberated in a sense to to write more stories that were more grim and had unhappy endings the actors wanted to get in on it you know Tyrone Power and Jimmy Stewart and it's like I you know I want to I want to cross over and do that the darker stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, so that that's why I really consider it from like 19 I'm going to say from 1944 to about 1952 I mean, it really was a movement, mm-hmm. uh, and and there were obviously films that were precursors of this movement, and there were a lot of films that came afterwards that uh, extended what was created during that time. Is there a but particular the, film? The bulk, the bulk of it is like those eight eight to ten years. Is there one particular film that you would call the first true noir that uh, started this movement? 
Well, yeah, I thank you for saying started the movement because (laughs) (laughs) without that, I mean, people just endlessly backtrack to like, oh, wait a second, under Joseph von Sternberg's Underworld or, you know, Murnau's Sunrise. Uh um, But unquestionably, it's double indemnity. And, And the reason I say that is because it it brought all the elements together that we now consider to be emblematic of noir. And it made money, mm-hmm. right? And, I mean, in Hollywood, that's the key. You're not going to have a movement unless it makes money, right? Need that bottom uh, line. I mean, in the future, people will look back on America at this era and say, what was with all the superhero movies, right? <laughs> well, I can guarantee you there there wouldn't be a movement in, you know, superhero cinema if the movies weren't making money, right? So... That's a huge part of it. So double indemnity was essential. It it had popular and critical acclaim. And, and everybody said, let's do that. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's what works. Let's do that for a little while and see how it comes out. Exactly. But it really did become um, uh, an, an organic artistic movement because even though double indemnity was successful – and allowed more movies like that to be made. It wasn't like it was so hugely successful that there was this incredible demand by either the studios or the public. It really was the artists themselves who were saying, we want to do this, and if we can do it you know, inexpensively enough, these movies will make money. There, you know, there was no noir film that was a, a blockbuster at the box office. You know, I mean, people talk about Gilda and The Postman Always Rings Twice, and I'm going to say those are probably the two most successful movies in terms of box office of that of that era, noir films of that era. But they weren't like the highest grossing movies of the year. I think Gilda was like the eighth or tenth highest grossing movie of 1946 and postman's in there somewhere, you know, Mm -hmm. but you know, it it wasn't like they were Titanic hits. It was that the, the artists themselves were the ones driving the movement. So Eddie, you're clearly very knowledgeable and passionate about this, uh, about this movement of film. Uh, I was curious, when did you really start getting interested in, uh, in noir, the, in noir as a style? Um, it was pretty pretty early on, I think, when I was a teenager. Um, I I would cut school nice. <laughs> very often, <laughs> and I would watch uh, Dialing for Dollars, the good old days when uh, you know th- these movies were on in the afternoons. But of course, I saw them all with commercials originally. So you know, God love Turner Classic movies, and you know the fact that you can see these things on TV now uninterrupted. But I think that was it, and I start. I just gravitated towards the films. I get asked this question a lot, and I'm gonna. And I hate to. I, I'm not trying to be elusive, at all. But the the reality is is that different people are drawn to different styles and different mm-hmm. things, you know. And other people, when they're in, at an impressionable age, are going to love the Marx Brothers, and and other people are going to love, you know, uh, westerns and things. And I was just in, instinctively drawn to dark urban crime thrillers, you know, and I haven't gone through analysis to determine why that is, but, um, you know, that, that's it. I mean, it, it, it connected with me, uh, in a, in a very strong, vivid way. And it, and it still does. And now I'm excited because I, I, 
I see it elsewhere. You know, now I've explored Argentine cinema and, uh, you know, German cinema and Italian cinema of the same period, and I'm seeing, look, there are examples of this uh, around the world. This wasn't exclusive to Hollywood. After having been involved with it for so many years, it, it must be difficult to pinpoint when it first all started, right? It's kind of a hard question. Um, it is a hard question, but it isn't a, uh, you know, the way I look at things, my perspective is I'm not trying to find the source. It's not like I'm trying to isolate a disease. You know, <laughs> where did the Ebola virus start? To me, this is a very positive thing, and I, I find it very uh, exciting to, to always find new sources, you know, new new things that are like, oh, you know, Everybody talks about the the like when it comes to writers, you know, it's all James M. Cain and Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, and then you start reading more stuff, you know, and you get into W. R. Burnett, and then you find out, hey, there's another Cain, there's Paul Cain, you know, who did, and then you find out Paul Cain isn't even Paul Cain, he's somebody else entirely, and then you find <laughs> out that Jonathan Latimer, who wrote your favorite screenplays for noir, wrote you know, detective novels in the 1930s and you read. So, you know, it's, it's endless, yeah. which is great. <laughs> you yeah. know? And, and so I think the pursuit of knowledge is more important than pinning it down and saying, you know, this is where it all started. You know, and now, I, I don't have much use for, for critics who are like that, who are very disdainful uh -huh. of anybody else because they say, oh, you mean they didn't know that this was where it all began? Yeah. It's like, come on. Seriously. It doesn't matter I mean, where it everybody started. Everybody should enjoy their their pursuit of knowledge. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the that's what makes all this entertaining. Yeah, Journey, the, not destination or origin, right? Exactly. So I want to ask you about the Film Noir Foundation. Now, you are the founder and president of the foundation and uh can you tell us when that got started how you got the idea for it uh it's been around since 2006 and the idea for it was quite simply um when i started doing film festivals it became readily apparent that a lot of movies were unavailable and they were kept in film archives and i i need to explain to you that i didn't come to any of this fully formed, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wrote a book about film noir. I was asked to program a film festival based on that book. And everything I know now about film and film preservation and film history and everything came out of on-the-job training after, after that, at that moment, right? So what I came to realize was that, yeah, films uh, can be lost. Films uh, get damaged. They have a shelf life. And when they are out of circulation, they if you're lucky, they go to a film archive. And the film archives will only share those films if you are another, um, not an archive, but if you are a nonprofit um, educational foundation or something, then you can get the film archive to give you the movie. <laughs> so honestly, I, fa I founded the, this whole thing, the Film Noir Foundation, as a way of getting these movies so that I could show them at my film festivals. But then it was so successful, I said, well, let's just take the money that we make and put it into finding and restoring movies that are lost. And as, as far as I know, I, I am the only person that does this. 
that that actually has uh, film festivals where all of the proceeds from the film festivals, and we now have seven of them around the United States, all of the proceeds go right into finding and restoring another film that will then show at the next film festival. And, you know, um, and we've done this, like we've completely restored about 12 movies now and have preserved, which means just being able to strike a new print that you can screen um, as opposed to actually fixing and enhancing a, a movie that is otherwise damaged or incomplete. Uh, we've, we've preserved probably 16 or 17 films wow. and, uh, this is all since 2006. So it's, it's been successful and very gratifying. Yeah. That, you've been hard at work since 2006. Yeah. It sounds like, and it's evolved into, uh, entirely. Yeah. Well, I, I, it goes to show you, I mean, obviously we could not be doing this and be this successful were it not for the eternal appeal of film noir. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's what's so interesting. It, I really do think it's one of the few... Um, <laughs> it, you can probably tell, every time I want to say film genres, I kind of hesitate because, <laughs> <laughs> because have we agreed that that's what noir is? I don't oh, think so. Yeah. So it, it's up. one of the few types of films that um, that appeals to such a broad cross-section of people. When I do these festivals, um, I'm going to say the audience is is completely gender neutral. It's like 50% women, 50% men, which I don't think you're going to find if you were trying to restore westerns or war movies mm-hmm. or something like that, you know. Uh, and, and the age range goes from, you know, 80, 90 years old, people who are coming because, you know, they don't make them like that anymore. And I saw <laughs> this when it first came out. To uh, to teenagers, who you know, pretty pretty sophisticated teenagers, yeah. if they're actually coming to see these movies, and uh, you know, they remind me of me when I was that age, right? I'd go, I'd take a bus across town to see some, you know, Underworld USA playing at the Times Theater in in North Beach in San Francisco, uh, you know. The other kids in high school weren't doing that, I guarantee you. No. So I can definitely relate to uh, these kids today who, uh, you know, can be watching some Netflix thing on their phone, and instead they're actually coming to see these movies in a theater. That's pretty great. Well, you do give them a great uh, opportunity and a great venue to do it. Uh, coming up on Friday, August 25th, and it's going to be run until the 31st, you've got Noir City, Chicago 2017, and uh, the theme this year is going to be The Big Knockover. Is that correct? Yeah, well, that's what we entitle it. It's all heist movies. Yeah, all heist films. We're talking about The Asphalt Jungle, uh, Kansas City Confidential, and Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. And also, uh, you're going to be showing a – is it a restoration or is it just a new uh, – the 20th anniversary of L.A. Confidential? That's right. Uh, That's how we're kicking the thing off. Not a heist picture, obviously. But, um, you know, we like to start start off – on a high note and have do something a little special. And so um, James Elroy, who is a friend of mine, is going to come in and we're going to introduce the film and talk about the, the making of it. And it's also a bit of uh, uh, one of the reasons I was I was fine doing this and breaking out of the, the heist um, theme for this uh, was as a tribute to Curtis Hansen, who passed away earlier this year. And uh, Curtis was a you know, I'm not going to say he was a friend of mine, but he was a regular at my Noir City Film Festivals in Hollywood. 
Uh, and I really appreciated the fact that Curtis was uh, a movie fan as well as a really tremendous uh, writer and director. And uh, it, it felt appropriate that at some point during the year uh, we actually pay tribute to him uh, and his very, very untimely uh, passing. It was, it was very sad. Yeah. And, uh, and and James has written a beautiful uh, elegy for for Curtis that uh, that has been published, but he he will be able to uh, to speak about him in person, and I'm looking forward to that. That is fantastic because LA, LA Confidential is uh, personally one one of the films that got me into uh, what I guess will be considered neo noir and uh, this kind of revival revival of sorts or uh, uh, references to. Uh, the noir movement of time gone by. Are you a are you a fan of the neo noir sort of films? Well, I I'm just a fan of good movies, to be honest fair, with you. Fair. And, and I don't really, I'm not really one to apply the labels so stringently mm-hmm. because and and it's an interesting thing because I I do get a lot of um, feedback, pro and con, from people about my. Um, you know, just things I say about about noir. Uh, you know, when I do the thing on TCM, the Noir Alley show, there's a little feature that they do on social media that we call Noir or Not, where they just throw movie titles at me. And like, in 20 <laughs> seconds, I discuss whether this is actually noir or not, right? Mm-hmm. And these, these movies run the gamut, you know, from, I mean, I've discussed, you know, Rashomon. Is it noir or not? You know, uh, Godard's Breathless was, I think, the last one that I was talking about. But um, I don't really apply the neo-noir thing because if I can really see the roots of it in the film, to me, it's just a noir, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, So I, I don't know where you drop. I mean, I grew up during this time that that phrase was created, so I know that they're talking about, like, the 1960s, the mid-1960s is where they stopped calling things noir, and they st- everything new that was made that was in that vein was a neo-noir. But as more time passes, you just have to question, like, why the arbitrary, yeah. you know, timeline? I mean, wh- I don't get it, you know? I mean, I look at uh, a movie like Body Heat, I look at that now, and that was, I forget when that came out, early 80s, right? Mm -hmm. 81 or 83 or something. And I look at that movie now, and it actually feels to me closer to the traditional noir films than it does to any film made today. Mm -hmm. So, like, why would I tag it with this neo-noir thing? It's just, it's a film noir. I mean, it's Lawrence Kasdan making a film noir. That's what he did. So you see something so, like Blade Runner, and you see all of the elements of noir in that, and would you? Ju- and you're just comfortable saying that it's a science fiction film with noir elements, or would you say that it is a film noir? Um, <laughs> I guess I would say, why is it essential to put a tag on it? No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. But I totally, yeah, I mean, a lot of people call that tech noir, or sci-fi noir or any of that. But obviously that is a futuristic detective story. A futuristic right. detective story is is what that is. I mean, and it's just a, a hybrid. It's a genre hybrid, which makes perfect sense to me. So is Dark City. So is Gattaca. So, you know, all these... I mean, there, there's a lot of overlap between science fiction and, um, and noir, you know? Well, I mean, if you look at something like The X-Files, I mean, that's clearly a 
a science fiction-based show where Chris Carter chose to sort of adopt a bit of the noir style in the telling of the stories, you know. But he knew these are detective stories, basically. They're, they're hunting down, you know, aliens and strange phenomenon and stuff. But it's a detective story, and he adopted a lot of the visual tropes of, of film noir. Well, in a world of critics where everybody has to put a label on something, I, I've got to say uh, it's refreshing to hear your perspective on it. <laughs> well, my goal, it's funny, you know, because one of the reasons I think I'm a little different is because I have never seen the value of trying to be definitive. I, my goal is just to get people to watch the movies. I mean, that that's it, right? I mean, and I have found that um, by being more inclusive, uh, more people are drawn to it. So it's like, well, yeah, why would I say, oh, no, only if the film was made between these years. That's the only thing. I mean, clearly, noir has become um, this, this concept that, people are drawn to and like what is it i'm attracted to that i don't know know what it is but you know i'm attracted to it and i have no and i think that's great so it's like you know the more people that you can draw in the more likelihood there will be of younger people finding value in older films younger people understanding the history of why these films were made at the time they were made younger people using critical thought to understand how these concepts that came from mid-20th century are applicable to stuff being made today. Uh, all of that is, is very valuable to me, much more valuable than if I was some guy that set the rules. Like, it starts here, it ends here, and mm -hmm. this is what happens. And that's it. And I will brook no contradiction. Yes. Like, really? Yeah. What's the value of that? <laughs> you, may be, you may be the czar of noir, but you will not put uh, too many rules down. You are a kind, a kind king. <laughs> I'm not a despot. No, I no, am. not at all. He's 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 a good man. And he's a good archaeologist. Thank you so much, Eddie Muller, for coming on the show. If you want to find more from Eddie, he's got. There's so many places where people can find you, Eddie. If you want to know more about the Noir City Chicago Festival, you can head on over to noircity.com. Again, that's going to run from Friday, August 25th to Thursday, August 31st. Uh, Eddie is going to be opening up this festival with LA confidential. And he's going to be having a conversation with uh, James Elroy over at the music box theater. If you want to know more about the film noir foundation, head on over to film noir down uh, foundation.org tons of information there. And then Eddie also has his own website, eddie go over there. It's got all his stuff on there, you know, books, noir city, everything. Again, Eddie, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is fantastic. My pleasure. Very, uh, thank you very much. Tom, Connor, I, I really, uh, it, it's been fun. Thanks. Oh, excellent. All right. We'll be back in just a bit here on No Coast Cinema. We're on WGM Plus, and we are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. Stick around. Listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM Plus. We are your guide to the cinema of Chicago and cinema all around the world. I am your host, Tom Hush. 
and I'm joined, as always, by Connor Cornelius, my co-host, my best friend, but also worst enemy. Jesus Christ, I hate you, but <laughs> hey, I man, love you. Uh, we're working through some stuff, so let's just uh, let's leave it for the That's, therapy floor. All okay, right. Okay, jeez, you know I pay for we got we an got, hour every week. Tom, yeah. we're not going to get into this now. We got David Holcomb here. <laughs> All right, yes. As uh, Connor said, we have a guest in uh, for this segment, Mr. David Holcomb. You might remember him from one of our earlier episodes. He is from Soft Cage Films. He's a fantastic filmmaker and a uh, fantastic person, I would say. Thank you. I think I'm, I'm here to make character judgments, and I'm, <laughs> I'm laying it down right now. David Holcomb is a fantastic person. Controversial opinions. <laughs> Some people might disagree, but hey, I don't care. Uh, he is here to talk a little bit about an event that he had uh, this this past weekend. We're li- you'll be listening to this on Monday. This was on the previous Friday, called the Electric Cinema Test Three. The Electric the th- Cinema Screen Test. Screen Test. Yes. Three. 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 The the try. Triptych. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There it is. the th- The completion of this trilogy, but hopefully not uh, the completion of. Oh no, the we want to make it an ongoing thing, man. Like. Two, three times a year at least. Absolutely. Well, we're talking to him a little bit about that. But also, um, we're going to get a little serious here for a second because uh, we do want to take a moment um, in our own special cinematic way to react to the events in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, that recently occurred. Specifically, um, a terrorist attack by a white nationalist against people who were protesting against – some of the most despicable people in the world uh neo-nazis white nationalists people who really want to bring um this country to a halt if you in in the way in the way that we know it they want to bring harm to people that we care about um they want to bring harm to communities that have been um just widely treated poorly in this country and they're asking for their rights and uh you know they're willing to put up their voices and put their bodies in harm's way to stake their claim to this country. So what we want to talk about is uh, what I guess we could call resistance cinema, cinema that depicts struggle against uh, oppressive forces in both, you know, realistic scenarios and, um, you know, fictional scenarios. And uh, hopefully we can inspire you to watch some of these films that have in turn inspired people to fight for their own rights. So first let's go to the, uh, the event with soft cage films. David, can you tell us a little bit about what went down on Friday night? (laughs) Um, I'd love to. So the electric cinema screen test is a thing we've done uh, twice before, as you can tell from the number three, three. (laughs) Um, and basically I wanted to bring together, uh, just a multidiscipline arts happening, um, focusing on inclusivity and uh, uh, filmmakers that are sort of underrepresented or don't get much love on like the traditional film uh, festival circuit. So last night we opened up the event with the poet um, Juliana Gonzalez. We met her at a uh, no dapple um, water protector action. Um, <clears throat> I believe it was in Pilsen, perhaps it was downtown. Um, this group, uh, they do like direct actions all over the city, so mm-hmm. it's hard to keep uh, keep tabs on them. But they're fighting f- uh, against the um, Dakota Access Pipeline. She's got a lot of um, words um, about 
this like you know the the patriarchy and white supremacy and capitalism and all these things that you know kind of intersect uh to oppress native peoples and so she kind of launched us off last night um then we got into a film program with seven filmmakers in chicago i'm just going to run through them real quick uh Tyler Pistorius and Joseph R. Lewis, they did a, a film that was um, where they discovered these marionettes in this building downtown that had been kind of abandoned, and when they tracked them down, they met this guy that's from Michigan City, uh, Indiana, and um, he had been working in marionettes. He handmade these things. He's been, like, entertaining children for, like, 60 years, and then the whole thing went bankrupt. Um uh, Casey Puccini did another sort of personal piece uh, that was sort of reflecting his father's words right back at him to sort of explore this like existential um, meaning that he's exploring in life. Um, Lane Marie Williams, she's from Alabama, and she has a film called Bama Bell, and mm-hmm. it was like an exploratory piece, sort of expressionistic um, and it's a work in progress, so she's going to be expanding these characters into a larger southern gothic horror film coming oh, up, which right. I'm really excited to those see what are, she does with that. Those are all words I enjoy. I know, yeah. I'm excited. Um, Lonnie Edwards, I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He's kind of a big deal nowadays. Um, he's going to be doing some stuff with uh, Theaster Gates and Chance the Rapper in oh, Chicago wow. soon. But he had this film called Exodus, which was about the great uh, black migration that occurred back in like the early... I guess it was the 100-year sort of uh, anniversary of that last year. Mm-hmm. So they developed this piece called Exodus, which um, kind of links the uh, sort of homegrown Midwestern uh, artistic uh, black artistic scene with sort of traditional um, culture that was occurring in the South and how that kind of migrated up here. Mm-hmm. Then there was a film called Uninsurable, by Anya Solitaire, Claire Austin Smith, and Mimi Wilcox, and they're doing a series. This was the first episode where they uh, sort of um, explore a family's relationship to healthcare. So there was a young girl who was diagnosed with uh, uh, cancer and her struggles, and how you know the ACA literally saved her life. So that was very powerful. Um, then we went into a film by Gretchen Haas called The Air We Breathe, which explores the pet coke situation in, like, East Chicago and uh, Whiting, Indiana. There's, like, some refinery factories there, and there's just astronomical rates of uh, asthma in that community. And so showing what the residents are trying to do to fight back against these huge corporations. Um, and then Soft Cage Films, my company, we premiered the first part of an interview we did with a young man, uh, uh, named Marcus Mitchell, he's um, he's a member of the uh, Navajo tribe uh, out of Arizona, and he witnessed what was going on in Standing Rock, and him and a buddy, uh, they just um, hitchhiked up to Standing Rock, um, joined the movement, and got involved in some of the uh, skirmishes that were occurring when the police started to raid the camp, and he was... Uh, shot in the eye with a beanbag, in the back of the head with a rubber bullet. And so we, we, we've got some footage from on the ground um, from the events that took place, and then our interview took place five months later with him in Chicago. He's come because um, there's a warrant out for his arrest, and he's trying to find legal representation and um, deal with all of the ensuing health issues. So that was the film program, and then we closed out the evening with a set by a just fantastic um, 
uh, Latino uh, Chicago band called Kelroy. Fantastic. Yeah, so it was a full That's night. A, yeah, it was a full gathering, man. And it sounded like there were just real quick. What there were some things that you had to <laughs> go through yeah. to even put it put yeah. on the show. Right? Yeah. So load in was five p.m. For those of you that don't know, that's when we show up with all of our gear uh, ready to go. And at three p.m., the venue called and said that they got evicted from their their location <laughs> by their landlord. Oh, no. So, but they already had. I have to give them props because they had already kind of figured out a contingency for us and we just moved right across the street um this this venue called the living room was gracious enough to you know host us and it was mm-hmm. fabulous so i have no complaints it's just one of those things that happens and you yeah. kind of roll with it yeah it seems like a very chicago thing where it's just like <laughs> yeah. oh yeah no it's it's no big deal we just got kicked out it's really just excited a disaster. for tonight <laughs> yeah we're gonna go across the street it's totally cool. My buddy Marty, he knows it. Like yeah. that, we're going. It's gonna be cool. It was our buddy Keith. Keith, very close. Keith, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you did it. Yes. You made you made a thank great you, event Keith. happen. And Keith was fabulous. He gave us the same, you know, uh, such, you know, we had the same setup with the with the band and the the AV situation. That's so it was great. great. Yeah, yeah. And this is, I mean, with Soft Cage, this is not the first time that you guys have kind of. Uh, put yourselves out there in terms of doing something revolutionary or something that is focused on resistance. Uh, specific- kind of our mission statement. Yeah, it is your thing. <laughs> it's, it is your thing. And I want, you know, not just your uh, narrative films that we talked about on the last time we had you on, Pilgrim, Graffito, and Yellow. Yellow, that's like, that's your horror one, right? Yeah. Yeah, but you even know, that was even sort of our got, dipping like- the toe in the, uh, you know, sort of uplifting underrepresented voices exactly resisting the system and you've got a series called activism now right yeah, that's and, our doc series and uh i've just i've you know ever since um we chatted i've been want, trying to keep up with these and watching them oh, and cool. honestly i would recommend to anybody listening go check it out it's on softcagefilms.com just or get on. involved because that's yeah. the toughest thing is there's so much happening right now that we don't often have the resources to cover everything we'd like to and mm-hmm. uh I always tell people it doesn't really matter what your equipment is. Uh, I've shot some of these things on, like, a cell phone. So if you want to get involved, please reach out, softcagefilms.com. Yeah, it's a fantastic series of, you know, just short short documentaries Mm -hmm. that are telling different stories from around the city. And uh, I really love it. And that, I mean, that's a good segue here into our talk of resistance cinema. Um, The event last night clearly had a focus on uh you know a little like this kind of resistive idea and saying we're not going to take you know the forces that the the powers that be anymore as um as a given and the best part is is that i i feel that cinema has a really long history of doing things uh that would be considered revolutionary or putting out ideas that are considered revolutionary and i know we've all been watching some films made a short list here of some films that um kind of fit that description so um connor would you want to just kind of start us off with like what's what's some resistance cinema that you've been watching lately so i recently this week i just watched rome open city fantastic uh, yeah directed by uh roberto rossellini it's about the nine month nazi occupation of rome and it was shot and released in 1946 or was shot in 1945 released in 1946 so it was right after the nazis had like been kicked out of rome so and the film is shot in sort of a noiry, um, like docudrama style film, yeah. and it's very violent and very. It has a great sense of humor, and I think the my favorite takeaway from that movie 
was the uh, sense of humor that it had, even though it had kind of a bleak ending. Mm-hmm. And in a bleak situation, it just kind of reminds me, it's sort of a message that can be applied to today. You know, humor helps in hard times. Yeah. And the best part about that movie is that is that it starts off the Italian neorealism movement, as um, many film historians like to call it. And that's coming from, as you said, being shot literally in the aftermath of World War II. Um, Rossellini is, you know, shooting the he doesn't have sets. He doesn't have that much uh, material. He barely has film stock. Um, as the story goes, they were reusing old damaged film stock to shoot a lot of this stuff. Cause they were just like, well, you know, the fascist government has collapsed and there's no money anymore. So uh, we kind of have to make do with what we have. And um, all those bombed out buildings that you see in that film are real. All these locations are real. And um, one of my other favorite parts is that he used, uh, he, he used a real, what felt like a real story. It's, you know, for those of you who have not seen Rome Open City, and I heavily suggest that you watch it if you haven't, uh, just tells the story of some Italian resistance fighters going up against the Nazis, um, but also showing their home lives, showing how post, you know, occupied um, Italy kind of functioned back then. There's people yeah. running to, you know, storming a bakery to get bread so that they can get around using the ration tickets. And uh, people making do, people getting married, people living their lives, kids going to play soccer at the local parish. And um, all the while, there's this revolution going on beneath the surface. And that's why I really love that movie. The The humor as well, as you mentioned, yeah. it does take a very serious topic and bring in some lightness. And um, it would just, you know, it would be too easy to make it just a complete downer. Yeah. And uh, it does a good job of doing that. Too. Yeah. There's really a try. It really is like a triumph of the human spirit. Like when you watch this movie and there is some real heartbreak in there. But um, it's actually part of his. He did something called the War Trilogy, which includes Rome Open City, a film called Paisan, and then Germany Year Zero. And um, if you get a chance, like watch Rome Open City. And if you only get to watch that one, that's okay. But if you can, watch the other two, and it'll give you a really good picture of what was happening in terms of, uh, you know, the events of the time and the way people were living, but also how film was moving towards this kind of realist perspective and trying to use real places, you know, uh, on location shoots, all that kind of stuff. Uh, David, do you have a film that – I know you got a list there. You have a full yeah, list. Yeah, I started a list and it got out of hand. Um, yeah, I got a – so I just kind of wanted to preface this. Uh, I, I was I was talking with my friend uh, Adam Blaskowitz. You guys met him last time we yeah, were here, right. um, another filmmaker that uh, is a part of our company. And uh, the, the one of the films we've always bonded over is The Conformist. Yeah. Have you guys seen this movie? I don't think I have. I saw it ages ago. Yeah, ages so ago. we were just talking about how it's interesting that a lot of these films have to do with, like, really, uh, like, they focus in on one single personality and the either the revolution or the war or, or whatever's, whatever they're resisting is, is sort of like the backdrop. So mm-hmm. um, it, it seems like a, a stronger way to connect to these sort of stories is how do people function within these these systems. So... The Conformist is a great one where he's he's just trying to uh, sort of fit in and create as little resistance as possible um, until that becomes untenable. So mm-hmm. it's almost like the it's the Conformist. So it's almost the opposite of resistance. Yeah. But 
you know, he's under a lot of pressure to resist or do the right thing because he's he's been sent out by the um, the fascists to uh, uh, kill one of his old professors. You know, who's who's been a big you know positive influence on his life, and so he you know has to make a decision whether or not to participate and and you know collaborate or you know stand up for what he believes in. But throughout the film, he's got you know no spine, and so yeah. he's just kind of like floating around, but. It's just very interesting because in that film, it almost makes it seem harder to conform than it would be to just do what you – 